but we can we can move from ship to ship and set up an operating room in various areas. We have to get creative on how we get patients down there because there's no elevator on some of these. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Dr. Ramon Sestero to WarDocs. Dr. Sestero is a trauma surgeon, surgical intensivist, and a Navy reservist. He served as an active duty Navy trauma surgeon for 10 years, completing seven deployments throughout his career, including three to combat zones in the Middle East. Dr. Sestero is currently a professor of surgery at University of Texas Health, San Antonio. You can read Dr. Sestero's full bio on our website, wardocspodcast.com. We're both Army physicians and are used to Roll 2, Roll 3, caches, field hospitals, FSTs. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the Navy and where surgeons are dispersed throughout the combatant command? Absolutely. Navy does, uh, Navy surgeons are on ship, right? So we do support the fleet. We're pretty much we're anywhere where the Marines or Navy personnel are. So surgeons are usually on carriers or amphibs, we call them, uh, amphibious ships. Carriers are very much familiar with 5,000 people or so, carry a lot of the fighters and jet fighters, et cetera. The amphibious ships are more cargo, carry all the equipment and personnel for the Marine Corps. And within both of those types of ships, we have operating rooms, clinics, fairly large. So we can operate and we can do pretty much anything you can do in a roll two facility. So that's, that's taking care of the fleet. We also support the Marine Corps when they deploy. So we go everywhere the Marines go, meaning we go to Iraq, Afghanistan, anywhere they're, they're landing, we're close behind providing support. And that's usually more in the classic roll two facility, a tent that you can take up and take down within an hour. More familiar with forward surgical team for the Army or the Air Force, you know, roll two unit. So is that any different for a trauma surgeon or a critical care surgeon? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's actually fairly similar. And as, as you guys know, we do the same job wherever we go. It's just uh, what we're doing it with and, and uh, what kind of environment we're doing it in. So really the, the facilities uh, are very similar. The equipment's very similar. So the trauma surgeons really are, are deployed and used, utilized very similarly to the trauma surgeons in the Air Force and the Army. When we're on ships, so it is a little bit different because you're, you're very much a general surgeon. This is in trauma. You're taking care of uh, urologic uh, diseases, orthopedic injuries. A lot of the things we're not typically trained in as general surgeons because there's no one else. And you may be so far off a coastline that even with an aircraft, you can't get that patient off for several days. And so it is a little, it's true general surgeon where you're the only surgical capability on these facilities. What kind of ancillary support do you have on a carrier? So carrier, usually it'd be one surgeon. There will be a few medical uh, personnel, just general medicine. There'll be a dentist, uh, some emergency room physician types. But really, as far as surgical capability, you'll be it. And is there ever any transfer of patients within a fleet as they're out at sea? Absolutely. So there, we go out as a, as a carrier battle group or an amphibious uh, battle group. And the name changes every other year. But uh, we go out with a carrier or a large amphibious ship, and that'll be our, our main uh, uh, medical uh, facility. And then along with that will be some destroyers, frigates, uh, maybe a submarine that goes with us. 
and we'll deploy as a battle group. And once we enter a, a specific AOR, then they'll get split up for different missions. But we will be the receiving facility for any serious injuries or serious medical problems. And so we'll just marry up with whatever ship is in that area that needs our assistance and, and they'll offload our ship. So currently your day job is, you know, working trauma in a trauma center, level one trauma center here in San Antonio, civilian practice. And so you've had the opportunity to practice in the military as a surgeon, as a trauma surgeon, been deployed. How is it different and how is it similar between the military practice and civilian practice? So look, at the end of the day, we're doing the same operation. The speed of where we're doing it in and the equipment we have, the uh, blood products, uh, amounts and types that we have, those are all significantly different. So I'm an instructor for the uh, Roll 2 Air Force teams uh, here at Camp Bullis. And so pretty frequently I go up and train folks before they deploy. And the most classic teaching point I have for deploying surgeons is really converting them from a U.S. downtown, a large hospital mentality where everything's available to you, assistance, personnel, equipment, blood products, to a Roll 2 setting where you don't have anything or, or anything can break or doesn't arrive or gets blown up on a convoy or gets plugged into a, a 220 instead of 110 and then your level 1 infuser is fried for the entire deployment like has happened to me. And so just just converting to a really austere where you don't have environment where you don't have anything is really the biggest mind change or mindset change that's required when you deploy. So from the end of the day, I think we do the same thing, a lot of damage control. You know, that's one of the big benefits we've taken from the military uh, experience, bringing some of the experiences back to the civilian sector. But in general, it's just the all the things that come around uh, what we do every day. But the final operation is really, you know, going to be the same thing, stopping bleeding, stopping contamination. So tell us about your first assignment once you had completed your general surgery training. Yeah, so that was that was interesting because uh, the Navy held off on deploying me and staff on my boards. So the day after my boards exam, I got a plan to go to Kuwait to join my ship, relieving another surgeon that was coming off after their seven-month deployment. I basically came on a ship, the USS Peleliu, uh, LHA-5. It's an amphibious ship, one of those ones that carried Marines around and all their equipment. And I was on that for another seven months in the Gulf. Just really, we patrol there. We always have one big either carrier or amphib or both in that AOR just because there's so much activity. And so through that deployment, well, it didn't experience a lot of trauma. It's, you know, much of a it's fairly, fairly safe environment. You don't see a lot of crashes or, or injuries, but you do see the general surgery, hernias, appendicitis, orthopedic injuries, finger injuries, hand injuries, just general things you see as a, as a general surgeon in a small community. Did you feel prepared following your residency going into that? You know, uh, I trained in Oakland, uh, where it was uh, there's a lot of autonomy in that in my training program. It was before the ADR work week, and when a chief resident really was, might be the only person in house during those years. And so I, I felt fairly ready for that. I, I was not ready for all the non standard general surgery injuries or, or diseases because uh, we really just didn't do those in our residency program. So I, I took a lot of books. Our internet was very, very slow, but the internet was still very young at that time. And so I took my Schwartz and my Harrison's and all the books I could. Uh, and I basically, I, I would find, I'd get an injury and start looking up in a book. And that's the only resource I had. There's no one to call. Really, you're just left with own knowledge. What are some unique aspects to being in the Navy that people who are in the Army or the Air Force may not understand with Navy medicine? Yeah, so I get asked some questions about you know, being on ships, and uh, one common one is, well, you know, how many operators do you guys have? And when you when you say you operate on destroyers and these smaller ships, like, how do you operate on there? 
Well, a couple of ways. One is so one of our larger ships, so the the aircraft carrier and the amphibious ships, they have the six operating rooms. So we can actually bring on surgical teams. And we can do quite a bit of operating if he comes a mascot, if he comes a casualty receiving ship. But most of the time, we only have one surgeon, one operating room. On the smaller ships, because we do some special operations support off of those, we will go down to the mess deck, which is our cafeteria, essentially, and we'll unscrew the chairs on the big tables, and that will become our operating room table. And we'll use similar drop-down packs to what we do in roll twos. But we can we can move from ship to ship and set up an operating room in various areas. We have to get creative on how we get patients down there because there's no elevator on some of these. There's usually, usually you walk to some of these, so you have to slide patients down on litters. So the, the environment becomes a little more challenging because you have to basically get inside a metal building to bring your patient in because uh, it's not just not designed for that when we work on these smaller ships. Our living situation, people ask, you know, well, do you, you know, is it like a, a cruise ship that you, uh, you know, have these nice amenities? And it, absolutely not. It's a very cramped set of quarters. If you're enlisted, you're typically in with a good number of your friends packed together. Sometimes your your rack where you sleep, and maybe it's between. It might be just a few inches between your nose and the top of that rack. It's very very small space. Officers get a little more luxury. Uh, we usually share rooms, but these are not anything luxurious. And, and by any means, there's there's jet fuel. I remember there's a JP5 jet fuel pipe going through mine. I remember that very well. And so it's uh and they're long 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 deployments. You're on ships for, you know, upwards of 30, 45 days without, you know, setting off or going on land. And so it can be a long, long time in this, uh, you know, metal building uh, floats around uh, with, you know, not a lot to do. The surgeon, you're not really operating very frequently, young uh, crew uh, most of the time. And so unless there's an appendicitis or a uh, physical torsion or a, a finger injury, you really aren't operating. So there's a lot of downtime. Uh, for the surgeon during these deployments. What kind of a- imaging capabilities do the different levels of, uh, you know, the ships have? Yeah, so uh, mostly x-ray and ultrasound. Uh, I, as far as I know, at least during my deployment, there are no CAT scanners on uh, any of them. When we were on our last deployment in Kandahar, we had uh, two CAT scanners and MRI. I mean, it was, it was like here in San Antonio. But most of the time, it's just a simple uh, x-ray imaging and, and ultrasound on most of the ships. How about on subs? What what kind of medical assets do the Navy put on subs? Yeah, so there's usually not a physician on, on submarines. Uh, there's usually what's called the uh, IDC or independent duty corpsman, which is a um, like an 18 Delta, essentially for the other military services. But really, an advanced practice provider with some experience in diagnosing surgical diseases and, and, and other things. They don't typically perform surgery uh, when they're down there. There are stories that they, they have, but uh, typically it's just an advanced practice provider that can take care of most things. They can provide antibiotics for uh, appendicitis and, and, and some of those other uh, common diseases. Tell us about any memorable experiences you had on your first deployment. Most of that first deployment really did not have any hugely significant uh, memories but I will tell you during some one of the other ones because I did three or four on ships, and when I, I did do some special supports, uh, special operations support, where I supported a SEAL team, and so that's another thing we do. We do special operations off coastlines, et cetera. When the SEALs go in, there's usually someone around that can take care of a, a, a significant injury. And so uh, when uh, during my I think third deployment, we had some time off, and we were in Hong Kong for the holidays, and that was 2003 when the Indonesian tsunami occurred. 200,000 people died after a big wave came in, really washed out the entire western coastline, and we were assigned 
line to go to Indonesia, we're the closest battle group. And so we arrived with a carrier, a destroyer, and several other ships. But we were extra personnel because uh, we weren't really attached to any of those ships specifically. So we were asked to go on land and actually do some recon for, with hospitals. And so we flew in and basically found some contacts on land at the uh, drove us around. We went, found the nearest hospital. We talked to the local surgeons there. We took down information on what they needed, what they didn't have, what they did have, number of injuries, number of casualties, et cetera. And we brought that back to the ship. And we ended up doing that for the next 30 days. We're one of the first Americans to arrive in Banda Aceh, uh, in northern Indonesia. And I spent the next 30 days working with the United Nations, uh, World Health Organization, flew 60 minutes of Nikki Mabry around on a helicopter. Uh, I ended up on 60 minutes. And really, it was a, it was a, it was a very interesting experience because these people, they lost everything. You know, everyone lived on the coastline. They were fishermen. They had rice fields and their entire community, livelihood, brothers, sisters, cousins, they all got washed out. They lost everything. And as we went up and down the coastline, we were also bring some food as we were doing our reconnaissance and finding information on, on what uh, folks needed. When we'd land in the same place, maybe one day or the next day or the next day after that, we bring bags of rice. They would have gifts for us. They would have coconuts for us. And, and I found it to be incredible. They had nothing. They had no shelter, no food, no anything. And as we're giving them rice, they had something for us to turn. Very gracious, very appreciative individuals in, in Indonesia. It was really impressive. A lot of other countries have brought entire field hospitals down and they couldn't leave the area of the airport because there were no bridges anymore. So I ended up coordinating the helicopters from the uh, from the carrier to determine which medical assets should go where along the coastline. And so that was a, a really incredible experience. I'm glad I did. And I think we did some good when we were there. I saw in your bio that you, you spent some time uh, supporting the, the Marines in Fallujah. Any uh, particular stories from that deployment? Yeah, so I did two tours back to back. When I, I was in Guantanamo for a year, supporting the base as well as, as a prison. And so that, that was an experience in itself. But when I left there, I, I felt that I had been really a little bit disconnected from what was going on in the Middle East and CENTCOM. And so when I arrived at my next duty station, I requested to go to Iraq. And so I, I wanted a level two, and I was sent to Fallujah supporting the Marine Corps. And that was an extremely busy time. That was during the second push. You remember it was during a time that the uh, there were several Blackwater employees that were killed and hung from a bridge in, in downtown Fallujah. And there's a big second push to clear the city right before I arrived. And, and what was interesting about the location of our base is we were only about five miles from downtown. So very similar working in a downtown facility in, in Los Angeles or San Francisco or, or Detroit. The Marines would go downtown and get in a firefight and throw their casualties in the back of the vehicle, bring them back, drop them off at the hospital, reload and go drive back down. So it was this constant activity and number of casualties coming in. It was extremely active. There were three of us, three surgeons there, but it was a very, very busy time period. So that was very different from a role three, where typically you're, you're a little farther away from that battle. And the transport times are much longer. Unique just from our location and, and the amount of activity that was going on there. Near the end of that tour, they requested for another surgeon. They were short a surgeon. I found that I was very satisfied doing what I was doing there. I, I thought I was doing some good. And I volunteered for a second deployment. So I came home for two weeks and spent some time with my now wife. And uh, she supported all this and uh, then came back for another seven-month tour. Were there any particular cases that stood out to you during that deployment? Yeah. So as you guys are aware, when we when we go downrange, we support partner forces, uh, local nationals. And so it was during a time when voting 
was starting uh, in Iraq, post Saddam, and police stations, you know, where the places where, where folks would go to to, uh, to vote. And police officers, you know, they knew they were targets. Iraqi police officers knew knew they were probably going to get bombed or shot at some point. And so I was impressed by the, by their courage in doing that. And so we, one police officer in particular, came through and fortunately a car bomb ID. And uh, when he came through, he was one of the most severely injured patients I'd ever seen. He was missing his right upper extremity. He had holes in every cavity. His right extremity was was had a tourniquet on it. It was essentially almost blown off. And so uh, just the degree of uh, injury that I saw in someone, and, and again, they don't wear body armor. That was one of the mo- more impressive examples of of a, of a combat injury. And, and that was soon after I had arrived there. So I hadn't seen these. These are, as you know, nothing like what you see in civilian trauma. And so just seeing that, that degree of injury in one patient and, and the fact that these guys were really, they were just targets. And, and, and uh, the amount of courage it must take to, to be a police officer during that time period in Iraq in a young country like that, or as, it, as it's uh, start standing up after Saddam, uh, just really impressed me, and I haven't forgotten that. So being in San Antonio, you see a bunch of military physicians that come through UT, and some of them are going to be deploying, and they know that you've been downrange. What kind of tips do you give those folks when they ask? Yeah, so the first thing I tell them is that deployments is going to have its good days and bad days, mostly bad, but you're going to be really good. You're going to be doing, uh, you know, providing benefit from those guys downrange. They won't go out and patrol if you weren't there. So I, I tell them just remember why you're there. And then I tell them the deployment is really a successful deployment for me is all about attitude. Because you're going to go out with a team and, you know, everybody's going to suffer in some way, away from family. You're in, a, in an austere environment. All, the, all that comes along with that. But as long as you have a good attitude, it, it'll go well. And so if you forget that, it'll be miserable not just for you, for your entire team. And if you're as a surgeon, you're the leader of that team. And I think you need to set the standard for everybody else beneath you. What would you say is your most memorable clinical case from a deployment? You know, I, I was thinking about that uh, before this interview, and I, I wish I had one. But I don't. What I do remember, are, especially after my last deployment uh, in Afghanistan, I was the chief trauma at Kandahar at the Roll 3. And the, the number of amputations we did uh, was just incredible to me. The number of dismounted IEDs, it was shocking. And to have these young, basically 19, 20, 21-year-old you know, young adults uh, that are going out on patrol, 60, 70 pounds of body armor, going, finding IEDs, was uh, I had... I had a lot of respect for those guys. And so what I remember the most is really the degree of injuries that were coming through and, and just thinking that all of these guys, you know, are going to go home now, you know, missing two, three, maybe four extremities. I had a couple that lost all four extremities were also blind. And it was just, um, you know, it was just uh, it really made an impression on, me. Um, you know, that it, it was, uh, it was just a memorable and I guess, and I'm not sure in what way to describe it, but uh it was sad, uh, I guess is probably the best way to say it. But there were so many of them that I, I couldn't tell you one from the other because they were all very, very similar, horrific injuries. So we talk to people who are in the Army. Uh, they talk about things at Roll 2, such as the walking blood bank and other concepts about treating patients when they come in. How does that differ on a ship than being on the ground? 
Yeah, so on the ground, you're, I think, depending on what kind of facility you're in, whether you're Roll 2 or Roll 3, different assets. Near the end of the war in Kandahar, the Roll 3, it'd be hard to differentiate that facility from a hospital at home. Um, it was just so well-developed. Sliding glass doors, you know, rocket-protected roof, Keurigs in every office. So we had as much blood as we pretty much needed. The Roll 2, obviously, you're limited uh, in that. You can't carry as much, so you do, you do access to walking blood bank. On a ship, it's not dissimilar. Probably considered more of a Roll 3 facility. We have large freezers with uh, FFP and blood, or FFP, uh, and we do carry quite a bit of blood. And so we do have a walking blood bank. We practice it. It's fairly rare on ship to require that amount of blood product because we just don't have those kinds of mass casualties most of the time. And now I have taken care of, uh, when I was in Indonesia, there was a helicopter crash. We were going on and off uh, the ship providing food for the locals. There was a helicopter crash on land, and we brought all uh, patients back, but that was, you know, 10 people at the most. But uh, we typically don't have mass casualties requiring a massive amounts of blood product on ships. One of the interesting aspects of your career as a trauma surgeon that I find fascinating is that you have created a new retractor or device for aiding in the exposure of the inside of the abdomen when performing surgery. For those who aren't surgeons or work in an operating room, exposure of the abdomen and organs such as the bowel, liver, spleen, and blood vessels is that the injured organ is the most difficult part of the operation and that when the organs are injured, that becomes even more challenging because the surgical field is disrupted with blood fluid or damaged organs, which is a stark difference in doing everyday elective surgeries because the organs are normally in their normal anatomic location for routine surgeries. But this is magnified even more than conventional trauma with explosives and rounds used in warfare. Tell us about what made you want to develop a new retractor, the struggles you've encountered, and how it works and is different from the now available systems. During most of my deployments, I was in austere environments, whether I was on a ship or in a tent or somewhere that's just not standard standard hospital operating room. So, um, you know, in those situations, we're limited in multiple ways, personnel, equipment, you know, expertise, lighting, uh, and we're in a combat environment for a lot of it. So uh, when we do our operations, particularly in the abdomen, we need to generate exposure and visualization. And so the tools we are provided deployment are different than those we use in a an operating room. The, the retractor we're, we use to provide exposure in the field is the Balfour retractor, which designed in, 100 years ago, 1911. And it's the same exact design as today, and, and that's what we deploy with. And uh, during during these operations in a tent um, or other austere environments, I found it to be particularly challenging to generate that exposure that I need in those severely injured casualties uh, because of that device. Uh, at home, you have different options, and, and on combat, you don't. So every time I come after a deployment, I, I'm frustrated and, and uh, thought that third one that I really need to Someone needs to create something better, and and then I decided to do that as soon as I left. So uh, what I did is when I transferred to University uh, University of Texas, there's an opportunity there where faculty can partner with an office that develops ideas, uh, commercialization, so office of technology commercialization. I did that and uh, generated some uh, patents uh, along with an engineer, which we submitted. Got some funding for prototyping, and then eventually tested it out, and uh, the device worked. And the benefit of this device is that it creates really good exposure, similar to what we can achieve in elective settings, but where in elective settings we have we attach the retractor to a table, this doesn't require a table attached. So it provides similar table-mounted exposure without a table, allowing it to be used in a tent, on a ship, any austere environment, 
So it makes it very, very uh, applicable for military settings. But in addition, it also works for civilian settings as well, because the less time it takes for you to set up a retractor, the faster you get in there and control uh, bleeding or, or access areas of disease. So I've been on split surgical team, forward surgical team that has had myself an orthopedic surgeon as really the only two surgeons available. And I do know and understand the need to have your hands freed up so that you can do surgery. And sometimes even more importantly is to have your assistant's hands freed up so that you can perform surgery. You mentioned that this isn't mounted to a table. So describe to me the difference in this type of retractor and why it doesn't need to be mounted to a table. Yeah. So uh, when designing this, because I wanted to be easy for surgeons to, uh, to be able to assemble, use it, and not just the surgeon, but the surgical techs uh, that have to assemble it and provide it for the surgeon. Uh, I, use, I use basically designs that are already existing. So that Balfour design, uh, the one we actually deploy with is two metal prongs on a ratcheted metal bar. You basically bring those two prongs together, insert it in the incision, and then ratchet it out. And what that does is extend, expands the incision so you can at least get the wound edges or incision out of the way and access the abdomen. That's really all it does. Fast, but it's just not very effective. The table-mounted retractors, I modeled it after the Bookwalter, uh, which is the most commonly used table-mounted retractor in the world. And this is a table-mounted system, so it's a post that attaches to a rail on the table. That post connects to a, a vertical post, connects to a horizontal post. And then to that, you attach a ring, which is then supported over the patient. To that ring, you can attach all sorts of uh, additional retractor components, which are very good, and ultimately, you can really expose all areas of the abdomen, including way deep down in the retroperitoneum, access the aorta, the kidneys, et cetera. So I combined that ratcheting system of the Balfour with a ring attached to that system that, based on tension on the wound edges, you generate that same ring. And you can use those same Bookwalter components that surgeons are already familiar with. Surgeons know how to expose organs for their particular operation. I've just provided that same ability with that ring, but without a, a post attached to it. Again, based on the tension generated when you're similar to a Balfour. So I combined two technologies that have been around 100 years, 140 years, two most commonly used retractors in the world um, to really minimize that uh, complexity and, and increase the familiarity that surgeons will have once they put their hands on it. So I saw that late, later in your career, you decided to go back to school and get an MBA. How does an MBA help a physician? So um, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. It, it's very common when it gets asked to me. Because surge, as surgeons or as physicians, we're already in our careers. We know how to do our jobs. And so why do we need to go back and learn management or negotiation skills or leadership? Well, those are all things that we do every day, um, but we're never taught to us. I know um, we're not taught how to negotiate. We're not taught uh, how to lead teams. We just do it. And a lot of surgeons end up just being leaders by our, our nature, but some do it well and some do it not very well. And so what the, an MBA does, or just that education doesn't have to be a master's in it, is gives you some instruction um, and based on data uh, on how to lead teams, how to become more efficient, how to do project management, how to achieve a goal. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I see us, I see us leading teams every day. I see us negotiating with either my resident or my, or nurses or nursing leadership every day. And so I think we're at a disadvantage not knowing how to do it well. Medicine is a business at the end of the day. It, there's revenue, there's expenses. And, you know, there's a, there's a classic quote, no margin, no mission. If you don't, if you don't make money, uh, you can't achieve your, your mission for your facility. And so I think an MBA really provides you the tools and the language to not necessarily become a CEO, 
but at least speak on the same level as the CEO with the finance folks, CPAs, and get your mission accomplished a lot more effectively when when you're dealing with uh, those kinds of stakeholders. Are these skills you think that all physicians should know and we should incorporate them into GME somehow? Or is it a select few that should go and get their master's in this kind of thing? So, uh, you know, funny you mentioned that because a few years before, or as I was doing my MBA, actually, it's the, reason, the reason I started my MBA, I did something else during my MBA. Before I started it, uh, I was in a meeting and it was the end of the day. I was post-call. And uh, when I arrived at that meeting, there were 25 people there. By the time we got with introductions, it was 75% done. There was no agenda. I didn't know why I was going. And ultimately, it was a waste of time. And so after I left, I mean, I said, you know, you know, my friends that work at USAA, large corporations, they, they've told me about their experiences day to day. They would never, never go through this. It's too inefficient. And I, I thought to myself that one of the reasons it is that meeting occurred is because the person leading it wasn't trained in how to run a meeting. And so uh, I started my MBA and I started going through my courses and I really enjoyed the negotiation and accounting, et cetera. And I said, why isn't there a class for, for junior faculty to just get a little taste of negotiation? How to run a meeting, you know, setting an agenda, having times, and letting people know who's speaking for how long, uh, what are we going to cover? Simple things like that, that would just make day-to-day much, much more, much more, more efficient. And so uh, I went to UT System, Texas System. I went to my dean, the Health San Antonio, and I uh, received financial support to create a course. This is four years ago. Or, and we're, what we now have is a course in conjunction with UTSA School of Business, where 20 of our faculty are selected every year from different specialties, uh, medicine, neurology, surgery. And one night a month for three hours, uh, they get taught on negotiation by a negotiations professor. They get taught on communications by a communications PhD. It's not physicians telling them this uh, information. It's actually people that have studied it as a living. And so we've been, we're in our fourth year now. We've got really good results from it. Uh, we've had a number of people go on to MBAs based on that limited exposure to business and leadership topics. Um, so now currently we have two programs at, at UTL San Antonio. I'm actually the director of both of them. One is the executive development program for emerging health leaders. That's for junior faculty. And then we have a full MBA that we support the 27 month program to UTSA. And we've now graduated uh, 15 MBA students and about 80 of the executive development program. It's been very popular. It's now drifted down to the GME level. So residents in some programs, particularly anesthesia, are now supported in taking MBA classes. Their department also supports their own faculty to take MBA classes. So it's really uh, been a, a, a very fruitful set of programs. And I think surgeons and, and other physicians have started to appreciate how this can be valuable in everyday practice. What changes do you see in military medicine in the next 10 to 20 years that would change the care of patients that are injured on the battlefield? Well, I think insurgent battlefield like Iraq and Afghanistan probably not be the next next war. At least that's sort of that's my understanding. So I think the environment's going to be different. There may be more classic battlegrounds like with large nation states, opposed to insurgencies. So I think that might be different. Do more of the classic roll two, roll three, where you move along, et cetera, and not be in one location for a long time. I think equipment gets uh, lighter, sleeker, more effective. Uh, right now, we carry a lot of equipment to do what we need to do. Not all of it is designed for the military. Much of it is designed for the civilian sector, and it's just it's brought along on the military side. Uh, I think the training will be different. You know, we learned from the Desert Storm that, you know, we need to keep our, uh, our surgeons 
trained in their specialty for for the military. You know, as military surgeons down their particular specialties. And so I think sustainment programs uh, like the one that you know Dr. Becker is uh, is leading here in San Antonio. The Air Force has a really good program for pre-deployment training and sustainment for Role Two training. The Navy has something as well. I think those programs will hopefully continue and just get better over time. But but keeping that focus because it, it, it's too costly to send a surgeon downrange to protect our warfighters that may not have that trauma experience, but that may be costly, at least initially. So one of the major goals of WarDocs, this podcast, is to preserve the you know, the medical history from the perspective of physicians. And so obviously we are recording this and maybe a hundred years from now, your family are going to be listening to this podcast. What is one thing that you'd want them to know about your career as a military physician a hundred years from now? And so I think what I'd want them to know is that, you know, I made a, a, a significant commitment to saving and taking care of those folks downrange. You know, every time I'd see a, a patrol go out of, of uh, either Camp Fallujah or, or Kandahar, and they're going out to eventually get in a firefight, and they may not come back that day. I, I never had to do that. And I just really had the ultimate respect for anybody that, that signed up and did that. I deployed twice back-to-back because I thought I was doing some good. I volunteered to go to Afghanistan for the same reason. I volunteered to go on special operations missions, again, for the same reason. And so hopefully, you know, my family members will, will appreciate that I, I sacrificed some of my own time for those that were in harm's way. So I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for your time and sharing your experiences and insights. We are joined today with Dr. Ramon Sestero, and we really appreciate your willingness to come on our podcast today. No, thank you for uh, your time and thank you for doing this. I think it's a, it a valuable uh, addition to our military history. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of WarDocs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.